Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. There are three brilliant stories on this podcast for you, all told at a very special event held in Belfast Lyric Theatre on Sunday, April 16th. We were there to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And so, naturally enough, the theme was agreement, and we had some wonderful interpretations. At the meeting in a glum wee room, a reasonably civil pair of clerks read me my rights and the same caution I'd have been hearing if I'd been arrested for robbing a bank. Hey, Jane, he said. You know my mate James who wanted your number? Well, he's been shot in the flats in Derry. They reckon he's going to be paralysed from the chest down. Given that we were living in the Shankle, <laughs> an entirely Protestant neighbourhood, we deemed that such an erection would not go down well with our loyalist neighbours. So prepare for life in the dole, life-changing injuries and the troubles, and life with Mervyn on the Shankle. And we start with a 10 by 9 regular who we'd not seen for a while, Malachy O'Doherty. By way of context, the Irish News is a respected Belfast newspaper and a gyro is a welfare check. Take it away, Malachy. I was on the dole at the time. This was in the early 1980s and chances were coming up to do occasional articles for the Irish News. This would be paid work, not highly paid, and ideally this would lead to more work and in time to me coming off the dole, then I would be sustaining myself by freelance journalism. Well, that's the creditable version of the story, and it is how it worked out, but it's not actually what my ambition was at the time. I had discovered that if I did one article a week for the Irish News, this would augment my dole into a meagre but viable income. I could have an easy life with time and energy for my own creative endeavours. And while I was unemployed, I got my rent paid by the housing executive. I had ambitions to write books, and part of the little myth I had about myself was that I could be the impoverished artist in the garret, sweating my brains out for literature, but not too hungry, not unduly deprived. I wasn't being greedy. In another world, like the one we live in now, I could have been a lot worse off, but back then I could manage on the double without conning anybody on a large scale. So when the Irish News gave me a weekly column as a radio critic for £18 a week, I asked them to publish it under my pseudonym, John O'Halloran. John was my middle name and O'Halloran was my mother's maiden name, so I suppose that I could leg- legitimately call myself John O'Halloran. It wasn't that big a lie. Every Saturday, my column appeared in the paper, evaluating the output of the BBC and downtown radio and RTE, and in the comfort of pseudonymity, I could jibe at broadcasters or pay them compliments as the notion took me. And on Tuesday, I would go down to Corporation Street and sign on, and every fortnight, receive my gyro. What's pink and you can drink it? Does anybody remember that joke? No? The gyro? At the end of every month, <laughs> at the end of every month, I would get a check from the Irish News. Honestly, I felt this could go on for years, but I did not have an adequately refined criminal intent. I made a slight mistake. I decided to declare some of my work, but that meant drawing attention to myself. I was to learn an important lesson. 
strategize, stand by your lies. Occasionally I would write up a book review or an interview with a writer on, on tour, and I wanted credit for these pieces, so I asked that these be published under my own name to help build up my profile as a writer. When the clerk at the Dole asked me one day if I'd done any work in the past week, I said, yes, I interviewed Douglas Adams for the Irish News. He wasn't impressed. He probably didn't know who Douglas Adams was. And what are your earnings for that? I thought, don't panic. Some of you will get that joke. 20 pounds, I said, knowing he didn't believe me, though it was the truth. Douglas Adams was probably wondering why I hadn't taken him on expenses to afternoon tea at the Europa. In 1985, you could get £12.50 from the Irish News for writing a book review. And then you could keep the books and take them to the Lynn Hall Library and sell them. <laughs> but although I earned £20 last week, I said, I won't get it until the end of next month. Doesn't matter, he said. You worked last week and you get your dole docked. It would be a lot easier to start up a wee self-employment routine if you could paid when you did the work, not six weeks later. I had now raised the curiosity of officialdom about what I was doing. 20 pounds for interviewing Douglas Adams? He's having his own. Unknown to me, the Dole people then visited the Irish News and asked them for the records of the work I was doing and what they had paid me. That confirmed for them that you really could only get 20 pounds for interviewing Douglas Adams, which should have awakened their concern for my prospects. Instead, they sent me a letter summoning me to a meeting. At a meeting in a glum wee room, at a round table, a reasonably civil pair of clerks, a man and a woman, read me my rights and the same caution I'd have been hearing if I'd been arrested for robbing a bank. I was being interviewed as a suspect, and as all of us around that table already knew, a guilty one. This was stressful. Also, they had cut off my door until this was resolved, presumably by my prosecution, conviction, and humiliation. Having no money now, I had to offer more articles to the Irish News and try to open up other avenues of journalism. Then John O'Halloran got a very nice letter from a BBC producer called Terry Sharkey, who said he would like to meet him. Then another letter from the Dole. Dear Mr. O'Doherty, they had worked out how much money I had conned them out of, 83 pounds, and ordered me to repay it. This was bad enough, but my double life was over too. I was either going to have to stick to the low Dole income if they'd let me in the door again and avoid the temptations of journalism, or I was going to have to up my output and come off the Dole. I was in what the social workers and benefits rights activists call the poverty trap. And I sat down and grew more and more annoyed at the system making it so difficult to transition from unemployment to self-employment, which I would have to do since the double wasn't an option now. And in a rage, I wrote back to them. Have you any idea what a nuisance you're being? Here am I in the spirit of Thatcher's Britain, pulling myself up by my bootstraps, and you Jobsworths, you Hallions, you bloody awkward pen pushers are only making it much more difficult for me. And I knew that if I left it to the morning, I would regret writing this and would not post it. So I went straight out and dropped it into the letterbox on the corner. <laughs> the reply came before the end of the week. 
Dear Mr. O'Doherty, let me remind you that you are liable to repay overpaid benefit and have made no arrangement so far to do so. Please fill in the attached form and return it to us forthwith. The form read, I, Malachi O'Doherty, undertake to repay the sum of £83 at the rate of blank per blank. This was interesting. Was that a mistake? Was there some humanity here after all? Even a sense of humor? What have I wrote? I promised to pay the sum of one pound per year. Were they really giving me that much latitude? I'd have cleared the debt by the age of 116. <laughs> I didn't. Instead I wrote, I'm Malachi O'Doherty, undertake to pay the sum of 83 pounds at the rate of one pound per month. That would take seven years. And that was accepted. And I more than kept that agreement. In fact, I was able to pay it off a little quicker than that because that man, Terry Sharkey at the BBC, gave me work on a radio program. And from then until now, I have sustained myself through journalism and writing and never signed on the dole again, which is a pity because I never got to meet those ever so humane and decent civil, civil servants who unusually had understood my predicament, sought agreement before conflict, and bailed me out of my criminal past. George Mitchell could not have done better. <laughs> Thanks so much, Maliki. How lovely to have you back with us, and what a cracking story. And if, like Maliki and all our 10x9ers, you've got a story to tell, then get in touch at 10x9.com or contact us through our social media channels, the usual places, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, on to our next story, and she had come from Armagh for this event. Here's Jane Searle. James noticed me for the first time when he was with his friends. Believe it or not, I used to be a fairly trendy dresser. And in the 1980s, with all the Madonna hair ribbons, leather jackets and high top jeans, you young ones think you invented them, but you didn't. I didn't look half bad. Anyway, James must have thought so, because he asked his mate Paul, who knew me, for my number. That's a landline, if you can remember those. That was June 1983. I was 21. I had just lost my mum, and I wasn't really in the mood for love. And yet, from across the main street in Armagh, James did look pretty good. He had blonde hair, good build, nice jacket. Thing was, though, he was English. Paul told me he had been in the army and loved it so much over here that he had transferred to the police and was going to be stationed in Derry. All the alarm bells went off for me. Nah, Paul, I told my friend. Tell him I'm flattered, but, it's not a, but now is not a good time. It was a gentle brush off, really, because I was really thinking, no way, not for me too far away, too complicated, too dangerous. That summer was hard. I was grieving for my mum, 
trying to put all my energy into anything that could distract me from the sadness. My latest hobby was jogging. This time I modeled myself on Jane Fonda instead of Madonna. I wore leggings, a black and white striped sweatband, and a white leotard. I looked like some sort of demented zebra as I bobbed along the road. I bumped into Paul. He was on his own this time. Hey, Jane, he said. You know my mate James who wanted your number? Well, he's been shot in the flats in Derry. It's not good. They reckon he's going to be paralyzed from the chest down. I was really shocked. At 24, James wasn't much older than me, and I didn't know what to say. Maybe I could send him a card, I suggested feebly. Do you have an address? Sure, Paul replied. He's in Stoke Mandeville Hospital in England. And so our relationship began. 30 years before Facebook and dating apps, James and I communicated before we met, and it was good. I wrote to him about my secretarial course and my boring life in Armagh, and he wrote to me about his physio and his boring life in hospital. It was another three months before we met properly. He was transferred to hospital in Belfast. Turns out years of the troubles had made it one of the best rehabilitation centers for trauma. I was to meet him there one Wednesday afternoon. I was so nervous. I had my whole wardrobe out on the bed trying to decide what to wear. I liked him. I didn't want to be a disappointment. When the taxi dropped me off at the hospital door, my legs were so wobbly that I really had to concentrate to walk down the long corridor to his room. He was sitting in his wheelchair with the door open. He had seen me tottering along in my heels long before I saw him. I noticed that he was thinner than when I had last seen him, and of course smaller because he was now sitting in a chair. But he was still handsome and his smile was warm and welcoming. I leant over and gave him a hug and then sat down on the plastic visitor's chair. We began chatting and soon it was really easy. I even dared to ask him about his injury and what he remembered about the day. I think it helps to talk about it, he said quietly. It's pretty fresh in my mind. I go over and over it, trying to think if I could have done something different. But to be honest, I realize it was just the way the bullets flew. I was hit almost immediately. We were on one of those long corridors of the flats and so we couldn't get away. I lay on the ground, my face on the cold concrete, my body strangely not my own. And I thought I was going to die there on the ground by myself. As I listened to him talk, I wanted to make it better, but I knew that I couldn't. He continued. The patrol were screaming into the radios for help. The bullets were still whizzing overhead. And suddenly, she was beside me. An old lady took my hand and began stroking my hair. You'll be all right, son. Hang on, you'll be all right. Turns out she lived in one of the flats and had crawled along on her belly to reach me. She was praying over and over again, black beads moving swiftly through her fingers. I remember the smell of soap and the design on her apron. She stayed with me until the ambulance came. She didn't leave her name, but I will never forget her. 
I was trying hard not to cry. James didn't need that. Thankfully, someone tapped the door at this point and came into the room. He was an older guy, also in a wheelchair. He had straggly hair and a beard. Sorry to interrupt, mate, he said, looking first at me and then at James. But I was wondering if I could borrow some black socks. I've got that funeral tomorrow, and all mine are in the laundry. James smiled. Help yourself, mate. They're in the top drawer over there. And he pointed to the chest in the corner of the room. You're a lifesaver, the guy replied, and he wheeled himself across the room. Socks collected, he popped them on his knees and did an impressive three-point turn. I'll get them back to you on Friday, he shouted as he headed down the corridor. Who's that? I asked James. What's his story? That's Sean. Shot like me, but by the army. He's off to the funeral of an IRA colleague, shot by the RUC in a field up by the border. Crazy, isn't it? You're joking, I said, shaking my head in disbelief. And you too are sharing socks? The chair levels everything, he replied, and shrugged his shoulders. James and I dated for a few months while he was over here recovering. We often went out to dinner. He would pick me up in his fancy disability car with a roof that opened like a DeLorean. He warned me that uncontrollable body spasms meant that he sometimes farted. <laughs> and that it was best I had a heads up about that. We laughed and I desperately hoped it didn't happen in the restaurant. For his sake, not mine. In time, James went back to England. His family were there for support. We wrote for a while but we just gradually lost touch. Over the years, I have sometimes wondered how his life worked out, how he really felt about that moment in the flats when his future changed. I do know that about three years after I last saw him, I was living in Bristol. I got married and was at home eating my cereal before heading to work. I switched on breakfast TV and sat down on the sofa it was Anne Diamond, for anyone that can remember her. And she was interviewing somebody about bobsleighing. I got the shock of my life when I realised it was James beside her. I used to climb a lot before my injury, he was saying, and I needed to find another sport. The bobsleigh works brilliantly. They strapped me on with another guy and we hurtled down the track at speed. It's exhilarating. The adrenaline rush is incredible. I love it. I sat back and looked at James. He was living life. It wasn't the one he wanted or expected, but it was the one that he still had and he was going to make it work. Ah, Jane, always a pleasure to have you at the 10 by 9 microphone. And thanks for that powerful story. As you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but if you want to help with some of our costs, you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal. This is the bit I hate. It does really help, though, and thanks to everyone who has donated. But as ever, it's more important to us that you sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast.
Okay, on to our third and final story on this week's podcast, and it comes from Cork's Richard O'Leary. In 1988, I moved from Cork to study and live in Belfast. In my first month, I wrote a letter to my mum in Cork. My mum, a Southern Irish Catholic, was worried about me living in the North. Here is that letter. 21st of October, 1988. Belfast, Malone Road, leafy South Belfast. The Malone Road, you can't get posher and safer than that. Dear ma'am, thank you for your phone call last night. My accommodation is in a safe, middle-class area. Having said that, there are reminders of the troubles. Hostile graffiti, hovering helicopters, army patrols, soldiers on the streets in some parts of the city. The city centre is completely shut down at night, which is quite strange. Apparently, people get used to all this. Love, Richard. Although Belfast city centre was shut down at night, that didn't stop me from dating. Being a southerner, I'd never before dated a northerner. But I did think northerners sounded hot. (laughs) Didn't I fall in love with a northerner? An Ulster Protestant. (laughs) That part I didn't tell my mom. Those were the days when most families disapproved of mixed marriages. Being a mixed couple, one of our early decisions was to come to an agreement on where to live. I like to think I was the flexible one. And in March 1989, I agreed to move out of my rented accommodation on the Malone Road and move in with my new partner in the Shankill. Like many couples who have just moved in together, we had our disagreements. Ours began in the bedroom. In bed in the mornings, I'd wake up to a growly Belfast accent telling me, good morning, dearest. Then came the big turn on. No, not that turn on. (laughs) That turn on I would gladly embrace. I'm referring to the automatic turn on at eight o'clock of the radio playing, Good Morning Ulster. (laughs) Good Morning Ulster, the morning news program on BBC Radio Ulster. But in those years of the Troubles, it was typically not a good morning in Northern Ireland. Each day seemed to begin with reports of shootings by either the IRA or by loyalist paramilitaries or by the British Army. So much so that I called the program, Good Morning Ulster. In my second week of good morning also, I could take it no longer. How much more pleasant I thought it would be for my partner to wake up in our bed to a softer southern sound. (laughs) And it didn't just mean my cork accent. I slipped out of bed and went into the spare bedroom. In the spare bedroom on the bedside locker 
I picked up a clock radio. I returned to my partner's bed and plugged it in, retuned it, pressed the on button, turned up the volume, Morning Ireland. <laughs> Morning Ireland, the news program from Dublin on RTE Radio Erin. This program may have been filled with the shenanigans of Southern politics, but it did have less violence. Plus, on Monday mornings, it provided extensive reports of the GA Sunday sports. <laughs> My partner was rather dismissive of this program, calling it top of the morning. <laughs> you may wonder, could I have not conceded in the bedroom in the morning in return for a gain in the living room in the evening? Could we not settle down together on the couch to watch the TV evening news on RTE? Ah, if it was only that easy. We didn't have TV reception for RTE, which required an external area to access the Southern Irish Channel. Given that we were living in the Shankle, <laughs> an entirely Protestant neighborhood, we deemed that such an erection would not go down well with our loyalist neighbors. <laughs> but there are only so many hugs and kisses that can smooth over such north-south differences. No couple could survive mornings in bed with the blaring of two clock radios. <laughs> solutions, imaginative solutions, that would test St. John Hume himself <laughs> would be required. We came up with an agreement, an imaginative agreement. Plus, we both believed in PR, proportional representation. We came up with our own radio schedule. Tuesday and Thursday mornings would be BBC Radio Ulcer. Mondays and Wednesdays would be Top of the Morning. And Fridays would be BBC Radio 4. As a couple, we realized that if we were to live in the same house and to sustain a long-term peaceful relationship, we would need many such agreements, like an agreement on which newspaper to buy. My partner, Mervyn, I did tell you he was a Protestant, and you can't get more Protestant than Mervyn. He was already buying the Daily Belfast Telegraph. On Saturday, Mervyn also brought home a copy of The Guardian, originally known as the Manchester Guardian. But I wanted the Saturday edition of the Irish Times, the Irish Times from Dublin. The Irish Times wasn't sold in our local shop in the Shankle. <laughs> it wasn't that type of area. I know, I did try. In 1989, with my Southern Irish accent, it wasn't really safe for me to use the local shops. But Mervyn went out of his way to get me my copy of the Saturday Irish Times, the thing some Ulster Protestants do for love. With Mervyn being a northerner, and me being a southerner, and us being a mixed marriage, it wasn't always easy living in Belfast in the late 1980s. So we came to another agreement. We decided the best place for us to live would be halfway between Belfast and Dublin. Our new home was right on the border at a place called Fort between Ballymscanlan in County Louth and South Armagh. 
Fortunately for us, we could receive both RTE and BBC Radio Ulster, <laughs> plus BBC Radio 4 on Longwave. That was a home for a decade where we lived happily as a pair of border fairies. In the year 2000, we moved back north to County Down. But like many northerners in July, we'd leave Northern Ireland for our summer holidays. <laughs> At Belfast Airport, I used to feel a bit self-conscious when Mervyn produced his passport of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. His British passport with its dark blue color. The dark blue color was different and in stark contrast to the wine color of my Irish passport of the European Union. But over time, the cover of Mervyn's dark blue UK passport changed, so it too was the wine color of the European Union. So when we traveled as a couple, we became indistinguishable. <laughs> Ours was a mixed marriage of three strands. We lived in Northern Ireland, on the island of Ireland, and we both had links with Britain. This was part of our lives, whether in our radio listening or in our passports. That's why the Belfast Good Friday Agreement of 1998, with its three strands, made perfect sense to us. Our relationship survived for 25 years, until Mervyn's death in 2013, and was sustained by a bit of humor and mutual generosity. And there's a lesson for us in that today. Richard, thank you as always for that. Although I never met Mervyn, I feel I know him well thanks to your wonderful stories. Thanks so much. And that is it for this podcast. Check out all the 2023 10x9 dates on our website, 10x9.com, including some special events and keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app. It's very helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10x9 and this 10x9 podcast. Thanks to everyone who made this week's 10x9 happen. The wonderful people at Belfast Lyric Theatre, especially Morag for inviting us. Podrig who made the brilliant poster. Margaret and Leanne who I would be lost without. The amazing audience who provided so much support. And of course, all our agreement storytellers. But especially Malachi O'Doherty, Jane Searle and Richard O'Leary. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.